This is the Signs of the Times Commentary, a look at the world from around our kitchen table. So now we would like to present some of the questions that our listeners have sent to us. And the first one is, for Laura, do you have a message for your fellow men and women, a particular focus for people? Should one kick oneself into discipline and awareness or just go with the flow of things? Oh, that's a loaded question. Go with the flow of things has been propagated for an awful long time, and it hasn't amounted to a hill of beans up to now. So You're recommending kicking then? Yeah, I, I, I would have to say, you know, kick yourself in the butt and make yourself do some things because, uh, and the main thing you need to do is you need to you need to be gathering information, you need to be searching, you need to be asking questions, you need to be networking, and more than anything else, you need to be working with your own emotional state because, uh, as as we have learned, uh, people who who let their emotions run them uh, become loose cannons, as as they said in in Great Britain during World War II, loose lips sink ships. Well, um, loose emotions uh, can certainly lead to people doing the exact wrong things at the wrong time and can and, and can, can create some very serious problems. Um, we see that socially, where the whole manipulation after 9-11 was an emotional response. It, it's totally to emotional. And... Uh, uh, the very tragic thing about it is, you know, I'm, I, I always tell people that, you know, women learn to deal with their emotions uh, much better than men because they have children. You know, a woman who can't deal with her emotions when she's handling an emergency with a child could lose the child. Well, the same situation applies to America and any other country, for that matter, under the present circumstances. There are emergencies, and women really need to get a grip on themselves because it's their sons that are going to be dying. And George Bush has every intention of sacrificing your son, believe me. And, uh, you know, if women don't start banding together and taking some action on this, on this, uh, uh, this agenda uh, that is truly at the heart of the Bush Reich, then... You know, it's going to be the old, you know, bring your bring your son home in a body bag rag, and uh, frankly, I don't think it's worth it. I mean, for 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 millennia, governments have sacrificed the sons of mothers in their uh, in their wars and in their operations that are designed to obtain territory, plunder, more women, power, whatever, and. I, I personally am not going to support it, and I don't think anyone else should either. And I think that you know, even women who don't have children should support other women who do have children, because you know, one day you may have a child, and and women have to stick together on this one. So you know, I say, ladies, you know, get yourselves together and and uh, refuse to support this activity because you don't want to be bringing your son home in a box. And another question that was asked, and this is one that we get uh, fairly frequently. Uh, is what do you think will happen next in the U.S.? Of course, we talk on the science page a lot. We have a lot of articles and a lot of facts and a lot of data, a lot of commentary on the current economic situation, the laws that are being passed on the war on terror. And so what do you see as perhaps the next step? Well, one thing I think that's fairly obvious is that if the 
powers that be, and I say that in quotes, are aware that there is uh, global climate change taking place, uh, referring back to this Pentagon report. One of the chief things that that they have on their list of things to do is to reduce the population. I mean, yes, of course, they want to get things completely under control, but they also want to reduce the population. Well, at this point, they have pretty well gotten things where they can control them to a very high level. And so I would say the next step is to start reducing the population. And they can only do so much in a war, and already they've got, you know, what, 150,000 or so of the, you know, the brightest and best of American uh, manhood out of the way, out of the U.S., and they're having trouble getting new recruits. Yeah, so I'd say the next thing that they're going to do is is probably some kind of genetically enhanced uh, uh, disease process, uh, probably propagation of a flu virus that uh, is particularly lethal. And it may even be uh, genetically specific. Uh, one of the one of the least referenced, a series of articles that we have uh, researched and published on our website is our is our work on ethnic-specific weapons, and that's very interesting because we notice we notice who is who in the world of alternative news by who does not <laughs> publish this information. Uh, and uh, speaking of counterintelligence. So I would say that probably the next thing is to start uh, instituting means of reducing population numbers. And let's face it, a nice, uh, a nice uh, genetically engineered disease that uh, takes out, oh, millions and millions of people is probably the next step. Well, we had an article yesterday on the website where some scientists had done some computer modeling of the avian flu. And according to their models, in a worst-case scenario, if the avian flu started uh, propagating around the world, if it attained the ability to to move from human to human, within six months, half of the world's population could be infected. And if you have half the world's population infected and half of that half dying, then that means you've uh, reduced the population of the planet by one quarter. And that I'm not a mathematician, my husband is, and he's not here right now, but if anybody can pop up with the number on how many people that is. Uh, 1.5 billion. 1.5 billion dead people. Uh, that's uh, Thank you, Henry. That was very quick. Um, that's a lot of dead people. That's pretty interesting. Of course, the idea that uh, our governments would decide to kill a bunch of us off might seem a little crazy, but if we go back to the Pentagon report, uh, again from the article that was in the Observer, one of the, the points that uh, the Pentagon made was, a significant drop in the planet's ability to sustain its present population will become apparent over the next 20 years. And of course, we see that in the war on terror, they're taking certain steps to lock down borders and uh, assert a, a certain level of control, perhaps before these uh, climate and earth changes come to pass, and at the same time, they seem to realize that uh, that will mean that the planet will not be able to sustain a certain number of people. And so, of course, what a nice way to pare down the population by releasing some sort of ethnic-specific weapon or biological agent. 
Yeah, you can find out more about um, the possibility of a, of a germ disbursement in a series of articles and series of um, comments and etc. that we've collected on the science page on our on our uh, site map um, entitled "The Flu Threat," which basically goes into because of the history of flu epidemics across the world and uh, specifically back to the 1918 Spanish flu, as it was called, that um, bore a, a lot of the of hallmarks of having been engineered in a government uh, laboratory and which, in fact, uh, in recent years, the, um, the US government has been attempting to resuscitate. Uh, for what purposes, we aren't really yet sure, but you can all let your imagination be your guide in that one. Well, let me say something about this, just because it's something that really bugs me. And that is the fact that um, here we are, we've got a problem in front of us, obviously. We've got global warming, we've got a bunch of lunatics who think that the the world is supposed to end and they're supposed to institute a global holocaust, a nuclear war, so Jesus will come. And uh, at the same time, we've got the possibility that there are you know, things happening in the solar system in our cosmic uh, environment that uh, may presage some uh, fairly significant uh, activity or changes. And their solution to this is to kill off a lot of people. And it's always bothered me because, you know, when I was young, I used to, it was my job to do the ironing in the family. Well, I mean, I had a small family. My mother was divorced. There was me, my brother, and my mother. So when you had to iron, when I had to iron, that meant uh, probably mm, ten pieces per person uh, for the week. So that was, you know, thirty or forty pieces of, of clothing that had to be ironed every week. And I and I had to iron, and and I hated ironing. I really, really hated it. Uh, and I would, I would. I would be ironing and I would think about the fact that here we have these clothes in this day of time that it that are really rather small. And in previous periods of history, people had massive garments, long dresses, full skirts, you know, multiple petticoats, bodices, sleeves, so on and so forth. And I also was a per- I also sewed, so I mean I I understood the kind of work that went into constructing a garment. So I had an electric sewing machine, an electric iron, and an electric washing machine to work with. And yet I was complaining and, and bitching and moaning because I had to do these thirty forty pieces of of ironing each week. And in in a hundred years prior to to my birth. There were women who were ironing with what they called flat irons, which was a big iron uh, iron that was heated on a fire, and there were several of them, and they exchanged them, and they ironed with these things that were heated on a fire, and they ironed garments that were basically huge mangas that had been made by hand. So in a time when we had no electrical appliances, no sewing machines, no electric irons, no electric washing machines. People washed everything by hand, ironed everything by hand, you know, sewed everything by hand. And now all of a sudden we have all these electrical appliances and we have these little minuscule pieces of clothing because women were wearing mini skirts at this point in time. And, and it was like the, the more you had to take care of your clothing, the less clothing you had to take care of. Dare we say it's ironic? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> That's cens- I, I censored. See, I could see you waiting for that one, Henry. But that, uh, yeah, but it doesn't. I mean, uh, what, what, it doesn't bear thinking about if you if you think back to Neanderthal times. You know what what the task facing them. You know, with bearskins and well, stuff. Well, they had I to mean, make bearskins. Yes, I mean it was all I mean, very difficult. But the point that I'm trying to make here, even though this is a little bit humorous, it's unbearable. Is the mm. fact that technology has advanced to the point where there is no reason that I can see. For every man, woman, and child on this planet to do without. There is no reason for it. There is no reason for every child not to have decent clothing, decent shoes, and decent food and a house to live in. We have the technology. There is no reason for it. And I resent the fact that their answer to the problems of this planet is to kill as many of us off as they possibly can. I resent that. I am angry about that. It upsets me. It distresses me. And I am really feeling a little hostile thinking about it. So that's my point. Um, I mean, just think about it. Just think about it. I mean, they can provide medicine for for everybody who is sick. They They can provide... You know, birth control, they can provide all kinds of educational things. They can help people reduce the sizes of their families if that was what was necessary. They can provide housing. You know, they have the technology to feed everyone. They have the technology. I mean, they have all of this. And yet, their answer is to kill us off. They choose not to. It's greed, right? And simply greed. I mean, it really makes me angry. But greed is, greed even, it's hard to... To even see it as greed, because it, it's got to be something even more profound than more, just greed. Than just greed. Well, it's a it, contempt it's for humanity, but it's greed to uh, accumulate as many resources and, and power and wealth to themselves as possible. I mean, that's what they've done in Africa, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the reason Africa, a lot of Africa is starving is because American and European countries have uh, essentially. Uh, first of all, set up tin pot dictators or fomented war, and then set up little tin pot dictators in those in African countries and then um, essentially allowed or opened the door to large American corporations to come in and just pillage and plunder and take out all of the, all of the wealth of those countries. I mean, so, I mean, it's just about a, a fairly large cabal of, of people who all want to be mega powerful and mega wealthy and the only way for them to do that is to, uh, the net result of them doing that is that a large percentage of people are... Uh, in, in find themselves in completely the opposite position of starving. Uh-huh. But Laura mentioned that, um, uh, briefly mentioned the idea that uh, these people who are essentially, let's call them the control system, or, um, are essentially waiting for Jesus to return, and that this certainly, while it might, might seem a little outlandish to suggest that these intelligent people are actually really truly believe in uh, in the idea that there's going to be a second coming of Jesus and he's going to return, but this ties in very closely to the, the Middle East and uh, perhaps the ultimate uh, objective of Israel and its partner, uh, or its partners in, in, in the U.S., in the neocons in the U.S., um, their ultimate oje- objective of the war on terror is to bring a final end to the long-standing Palestinian conflict. Initiate the eschaton is how it's put, I believe. And that's what they want to do. And uh, 
and all of their policies reflect that. For example, uh, even back during the Reagan administration, Ronald Reagan didn't see any point in uh, putting any money into any social programs to help hungry children or, or, or dis- disadvantaged children uh, because if Jesus was going to come and the world was going to end, you know, why spend money on that? Uh, better to put all the money into arms and into uh, getting ready to make war because obviously Armageddon was going to happen and they all had to be ready for this. And this is what they're putting their money into, Armageddon. They are preparing for Armageddon. And, and of course, Armageddon means that you know, from the American point of view, that all the Jews, except for a very limited few who convert to Christianity, will be converted to Christianity, or will or will be dead, um, and virtually everyone else who is not born again is going to die. You know, Jesus is going to kill them. Jesus is go- and this war, of course, has to be fought in the Middle East. Because that's what the Bible tells them. It has to be fought there. And that's where they want to fight it. And that's where they are amassing their troops. And and believe it or not, in this civilized day and time, this day of, of, of scientific advancements that uh, we could never have dreamed of 100 years ago, this day of space shuttles and spacewalks and and man on the moon and and, uh, and landers on Mars, they literally are actually preparing to fight a God-ordained war in the Middle East that they believe will bring their Redeemer down from the sky who will, who will rapture them all to heaven where they can sit around in the clouds probably playing their harps and polishing their halos while they watch everyone on, else on earth die or be destroyed. But isn't there a problem with the logic uh, to some extent, a problem in the logic of that, and that Armageddon is a is like a biblical uh, reference to to the end times, the the war of the end times, and wouldn't that be ushered in or, or created by by some you know heavenly host or something like that, uh, rather than the 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 machinations of 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 a, of a small group of of people with a lot of guns. Well, I mean, the, unless they do, they assume that they that they're doing God's work. That's that's the assumption. There it has has developed a philosophy, and over the past uh, what you know, fifty fifty years or so, that it's okay to be an agent for God. It's okay to uh, to do the you know to push these things a little bit. For example, uh, the settlers. Uh, in uh, in the areas of Israel who are supposed to be uh, being moved out now are settled there because they were believers in this coming apocalypse. Um, it's uh, it's a very frightening thing when you dig into this and you and you learn the details about this. And for those people who don't think it's real, let me assure you that it's real. I was married to a fundamentalist, you know, years ago. Uh, we were divorced in 1996, but this, this man really, really believed that he was going to be raptured. I have family members now, today, who believe they are going to be raptured to heaven and watch the rest of the world go through some kind of terrible tribulation and, and be destroyed while they are sitting there in the clouds 
And, well, and these people really, honestly, sincerely, to the depths of their souls, believe this. Well, that was brought into kind of sharp relief with, um, I think it was last year in 2004, when a kind of high up uh, General, General Boykin in the, in the U.S. Army um, was speaking to the, to the faithful at a, at a church about the, about the war on terror and was detailing exactly what the truth of the war on terror and what it was all about. And he said that it wasn't a war against Islamic terrorism per se, but rather that it was uh, more of a biblical end times battle between, uh, between essentially between God and Satan. And this is what he was explicitly telling people. And, and um, there, was a, there was a big outcry at the time, uh, for, well, uh, an outcry anyway at the time about, about these comments. Um, but as a result, uh, really nothing seems to have happened. Uh, it hasn't done any harm to the career of General Boykin. He, he is still very, very actively involved in the in the in in orchestrating the the continuing war on terror and the the the, um, the U.S. military's actions in the in the Middle East and Iraq. And well, the idea that Jesus is going to return is obviously a Christian idea. At the same time, we see in the United States the neocons are the ones who have power, and most of them are Jewish. So how does the control of the United States by the Zionist forces work in to the, the manipulation of the American population into an end-time scenario that's based on a Christianity? Well, it's really quite simple, because the Zionists are, are essentially... Uh, after power and territory and and uh, a country, land, money, you know, control. And as far as they're concerned, uh, those of them that are secular, that is, uh, anything that is good for, you know, furthering their aims of power and control is, uh, is, is okay by them. Uh, so they will use the Christian fundamentalists in the U.S. to further their aims. And, and, and it, it's really kind of an unholy alliance because the Zionists see the Christians as, as their means of achieving their ends. The Christians see the, see the Zionists as a means of achieving their ends because they, of course, believe that if they, if they recreate Israel, if they uh, uh, can help to uh, see that the Dome of the Rock and the... Uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque are destroyed, and the and the Temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, so the sacrifice can be can be reinstituted in Israel. That that will, of course, you know, signal to Jesus that it's time to come. And and I know that that is the most insane sounding thing in the world, but that is really what they believe. Uh, you know, I, I, you can hardly credit intelligent people, you know, saying and believing such things. But that is what they believe, and so they each are using each other, each believing that the other is wrong, and that they themselves are right. You know, the, the Zionists believe that they are right, and that you know it's it's their destiny to 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 rule over the world from Israel, and the Christians believe that they are right, and it is their destiny to see that the Jews are destroyed in in the at Armageddon. And it's really kind of a toss-up to see who's going to win on this one. It kind of sounds everybody's like going to lose. It kind of sounds like you're saying that the world has kind of gone mad. The world has definitely gone mad, and it has gone mad because of religion. And and and, and let's face it, Islam is no 
example of, of intellectual enlightenment either because it's based on Judaism and Christianity and a combination of all of the above with a bunch of stuff added in there and and the whole situation surrounding the, the emergence of, of Muhammad, long may he wave, um, you know, is highly questionable. And where into all of that fits the, the, the what is by now pretty categoric proof that the Bible, uh, including the, the Old and New Testaments, were essentially made up? They were made up. So how can these people be... But they were only made up in a sense. Now, now, now let, me, let me make this clear. The stories that went into the Old Testament were actually mythic retellings of actual events. Uh, but the thing is, is that the stories in the Old Testament, and I'm talking about the stories, I'm not talking about the legalistic uh, priestly documents that, that, that describe laws and rules and rituals and so forth. That's something else altogether. But the stories in the Old Testament, if analyzed properly, can be seen to be all variations on the same story, about the same period of time, about the about a, a, a very specific grouping of events. And somebody came along during the time of the, of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews and assembled these stories from various tribes where each tribe had, uh, had taken its own version of the story and had put in there the names of their own ancestors and their own relatives and so forth and had personalized it to their tribe. Somebody came along and assembled all these stories in a vertical... Uh, chronological arrangement, inserted uh, genealogies to make it look like the various stories occurred over a long period of time when, in point of fact, they were all the same story about the same singular period of time. So, you know, taking... And then, of course, there were the priestly documents, which uh, which were written specifically to... Uh, create a place for the priests, a uh, a control uh, situation for them. It was it was like creating a series of laws that put them at the top of the heap, made them the ones in charge, and they of course you know had a vested interest in doing that. So, what event are you talking about here? Or a series of events? Does this take us back, interestingly enough, to the idea of a catastrophe, a, a worldwide catastrophe that that these texts or these myths were referring to? Yes, it's during periods of catastrophe that these kinds of myths are created. And in this in this particular case, uh, research demonstrates that the period of time uh, when the uh, when the stories. Uh, emerged or, or the events around which the stories were created actually took place that became the Old Testament was the period of about 1600 B.C. when the entire Bronze Age civilization of the Mediterranean collapsed and this was related quite uh, significantly to the eruption of the volcano on the island of Santorini. And... Uh, much of this activity explains the activity of uh, of the Exodus of uh, uh, of many of the other events in the Bible. And when the redactor assembled these documents, he 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 was very clever. Unfortunately, he didn't have a computer that had a text search function, and 
nowadays with that kind of, of, of tool available, we can do a lot of a lot of work. And he also didn't have the linguistic tools available, uh, which allow uh, current day biblical researchers to uh, separate the different documents that were cut and pasted together to create the Bible. So, well, that raises the interesting point of there's all this research that goes on about the Bible and its origins, and biblical researchers just treat this stuff as, you know, it's a they know very well that the the documents were pieced together, but all of this research is kept entirely apart from the the believers, and there's a separation there so that the the faithful don't actually know what a fraud has been perpetrated on them. And this gets, I was having a conversation last night with somebody about the, uh, the book, the Da Vinci code. And they said that they were reading it. And what was striking for them were the few pages in it that described how the Bible or how the new Testament at least was put together by Constantine. And this was something that they'd never run across before. They had not. Yes. And that's really shocking that, uh, that uh, so many people reading this book, The Da Vinci Code, are not aware of those things. And, and in a certain sense, uh, Dan Brown has done, a, has done a very good service for people by including in his, in his book some of, this, uh, some of this information that is actually factual, which is uh, the fact that the Bible was assembled in a certain way at a certain time. Um, and you, talk, you mentioned earlier this, this need to, to rebuild the temple, but actual archaeological work in Jerusalem shows that there that never was there a never temple. was a temple. There the was ter- never temple was well, there was a temple, but there never was a temple of Solomon as described in the Bible in the time period the Bible says when it, when it existed. There was most certainly a temple, but it wasn't a Jewish temple. It obviously and clearly was a temple of a different god, shall we say? But all of those details, you know, I, I lay out in, in excruciating <laughs> detail, <laughs> detail in, in my book. So, you know, anyone who wants to, to find out all of the juicy details ought to read that because I have, I have really dug, dug quite deeply and cast the net far and wide. So it, it's, it's rather interesting because it seems that what's actually happening is that the people who believe in, uh, in the return of Jesus and the end of the world quote-unquote, um, are to some extent correct in that there may well be events in the not-too-distant future which will appear to be fulfilling that kind of biblical uh, prophecy. But the, <coughs> the, real, the real question is, it, well, essentially it's, it, it's, it's being set up to be a, a grand deception in that uh, the people who will be witnessing this will be vectored into believing in this fake uh, biblical prophecy um, when uh, and what's really being achieved there is um, forcing people to to believe uh, or to project on onto these events something that is not true and that so so the, the question is that uh, about what people believe as to what is actually happening and that's an interesting point because the I, it contains the idea that um, the people who believe in the return of Jesus or the the end times or the the Battle of Armageddon aren't actually that far from the truth uh, from one point of view because there may well be in the near future events uh, on the, uh, around the planet that could well be interpreted by them as being evidence of fulfillment of biblical prophecy but the the real point in it is what 
people actually interpret those events as? Will they interpret them as uh, the, the fulfilling of some kind of a, of a, of a made-up biblical myth, or will they understand them for what they truly are? Well, so it has ever been. It seems that uh, when you really deeply study history, you find that there have been numerous events uh, of a cataclysmic nature. And when I say cataclysmic, I don't mean necessarily the entire planet, but certainly areas of the planet. For example, it has now been shown uh, rather conclusively that there was a uh, cometary bombardment and a destruction of uh, culture and society in Europe during that very period of time when Constantine uh, uh, constituted what we call the New Testament, um, and that it's very likely that the uh, the sign that Constantine saw in the sky was in fact a, uh, a cometary, not a, not a, an asteroid impact or a com- an overhead cometary explosion of some sort. Um, and as you say, the, uh, the the question is, how will people interpret these things? Uh, the one thing I can say with absolute certainty is that uh, they're not going to be raptured up to the sky and watching while everybody else on the planet uh, gets their just desserts for not believing in Jesus. Uh, the, the the strongest likelihood is is that, that the people who are believing in Jesus will uh, suffer the exact same fate of everyone else, whatever it is that happens, whether it is a, a cyclical heating of the planet that uh, produces... Uh, extraordinary volcanic eruptions and earthquakes that leads to a uh, um, a, a dust cloud that uh, freezes the planet or heats the planet, you know, any, any of a number of various scenarios. But um, uh, those, those people who are dependent upon this idea of being raptured will have the hardest time because they'll keep waiting for the rapture. When am I going to be raptured? And as things get worse and worse and worse and they suffer more and more and more and they never get raptured, it it seems that they will be the most likely to turn to violence against other human beings because of their frustration. You know, because if if at the end they finally say, well, there is no God, there is no Jesus, I'm not going to be raptured. So... You know that can very easily turn into anger and rage at the at the uh, at having the rug pulled out from under their feet, the rug of their belief on which they felt so firm and secure. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Um, it's the most dangerous cult in the world. So, moving along to our next question, again from a reader in the U.S. Uh, this reader asks: With George Bush running the show and all the obfuscation. Could it ever be possible to catch these folks with their hand in the cookie jar? That's a really good possibility because uh, the biggest weakness of such individuals is just like the weakness of a psychopathic criminal. They continuously uh, underrate the intelligence of other people and overrate their own intelligence, and that causes them to make very foolish mistakes. So the, there is a very good likelihood that uh, that they will be exposed at some point, that they will make a really uh, bodacious error, that uh, people will finally see the man behind the curtain. And uh, 
you know, that's the Achilles heel of those who serve themselves and and seek only to uh, pursue greed and self-aggrandizement. And have you any ideas about where this exposure might come? Or from what well, area? Well, that's kind of a loaded question because... Indeed. Uh, yes, and, and you loaded that one on purpose, and I know it. Um, well, well, those who've, who've read a lot on our website are aware that we expect that there will be uh, some sort of exposure in relation to underground facilities somewhere in the United States. Um, it has been suggested that this may happen in, in Colorado. Uh, but of course, the very fact that we expect it and the very fact that we talk about it may cause those other forces to take action to prevent that from happening because, you know, we're not dealing with stupid people, first of all, number, number one. Second of all, we're not dealing with something that's cut and dried and written in stone. Uh, the future is open, which is, again, another reason why it's very important for people to gather knowledge and to constantly be looking for opportunities for for their moment to do something in a nonlinear way to uh, benefit humanity. Uh, you don't know when a word you speak now or an action, however small it may be, that you take at this very moment can affect the entire fate of the universe. And it's, it's one, of the thing, one, one of the parts of the philosophy, philosophy that we live by here, which is always act as if the fate of the universe depended on what you do. Because it may. So essentially what you're saying is for people to keep their eyes and ears open and not to anticipate. Exactly. And not anticipating is a very difficult thing to do because people would like to have answers. They would like to have the future underwritten. They would like to have predictions. But none of those things are possible. The future is open. So the actions or the responses of a greater part of humanity might essentially dictate the future or create the future. Yes, shape is a better way to put it. It might shape the future. You know, what you do now. For for example, you know, the life that any given person, any given individual is living right at this moment is based on all the decisions and all the actions they did or did not take in the past, in their own personal past. If they are not happy with their life at this moment, they need to look at the past, at their own past, and determine what those actions were that they took. And then they need to change it. Then they need to understand that what they're doing right now, that now becomes the past of tomorrow. And that if you act differently now, then the future now will look back on the past now and say that what I am living and experiencing now is based on that past. So creating or shaping the future is based on acting now it has absolutely nothing to do with you know closing your eyes and wishing something would be so or believing that something would be so or will be so it has absolutely nothing to do with you know rituals or or you know any silly activities that have to do with uh you know the the general create your own reality uh, uh phenomenon that's been making its rounds in, in the so-called New Age community for some time. It has to do absolutely with what you do now. And if you don't like your past, you need to examine it carefully 
and determine what you need to do to change the future. As much as we struggle against depression in the present day and time, as much as we see that is happening in our world that causes us pain and suffering, because certainly those who are fully human suffer when any other being on the planet suffers. As much as we suffer and as much as we experience pain for the conditions on our planet right now, we have to always keep in mind that the universe is infinitely capable of taking care of itself. It's not broken. It doesn't need to be fixed. And yet it asks each of us in the face of what it is showing us, in the face of what is being presented to us as the reality in which we are living. You know, today is set before the good and evil. Choose. What you do in response to what is set before you determines who and what you are. And you should never, ever forget that. You know, those that follow that part of themselves that is great become great. Those who follow that part of themselves that is small become small. And today, we all have choices. We must choose. How will we react? How will we respond to what the universe is showing us? If you want to know more about any of the topics that we have discussed uh, here with Laura, the details are available in a much expanded form in her book, The Secret History of the World and How to Get Out Alive, which is available or purchase from qfgpublishing.com. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week.